Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we're in our series, we're calling Outrageous, and we're looking at some of the outrageous statements, outrageous claims that are made in Scripture. Many of them come right from the lips of Jesus. Many of them come right from His Sermon on the Mount. And so I wanted to start off uh, this morning with just a question and just ask you, who has the good life? Who's got it made? Who's got it taken care of in their life? Everything's good. Um, Because that's one of the questions, that's one of the really, really big questions that Jesus answered. Um, Anybody been keeping up with the Kardashians? Lately? No, no. The Biebs? How about the Biebs? Anybody following, you know, tweeting, you know, Justin Bieber, keeping track of what's happening? We have this fascination with celebrity, don't we? Have you noticed that? We just, we just we can't get enough. Somebody's tweeting something, and we got to know, what is it? What are they thinking? What's off the top of their head? We have this fascination with celebrity. You ever wondered why? It's because we are somehow wired up for wanting the good life. And we think it seems to be attached to things like fame and, and success and achievement and beauty and money and possessions and desi- all of those things. And so we're so fascinated with people who seem to have that stuff because they seem to be the ones who we think have the good life. And, and so we've got like whole magazines that are totally dedicated to the title, one magazine, People Magazine, because we're just fascinated with these people. There's another one very similar to it, one of those kind of magazines called Us, because we wish it was us, you know? We wish, we want to know, what is the good life? And how do you get in on the good life? And we watch these celebrities, and we see it all happening, we think, well, they must be living the good life. And then, when the wheels come off and their life ends up like a train wreck, then we are more fascinated than ever. Because we are thinking to ourselves, how could anybody be so stupid? You never said that out loud, but I bet that's what you think every time you... How come anybody... Because we believe, we think... You know what? If I had what they had, if my life was as good as... If I had everything that they... Then I would be smart enough to know how to live the good life. And the truth of the matter is, we would be just as stupid. Because the confusion is not... our, Our confusion is, what is the good life? We have associated it with things like fame and celebrity and achievement and status and money, beauty. And that's not the good life. Dallas Willard wrote a book not too long ago. I've been reading it. It's a fascinating book. It's called um, Knowing Christ Today. And he talks about this idea that everybody operates from what is called a world view. It's how you see the world. It's how you judge success. It's our, your morals, your values. It's all of those things. And everybody has them, whether you've consciously decided this or not. Everybody operates from a certain world, world view, how life is supposed to work. And he said it really comes down to four big questions These are the four big questions that everybody needs to answer to be able to understand their worldview. And you may have consciously thought about these questions, or you may subconsciously think about them, but these four questions are really what determine your worldview. The first one is, what is real? What is real? What can I count on? What is real? The second one is, who has the good life? What is the good life? What does it look like? The third question is, Who is the good person? And that goes to our morals and our values. How do we decide what's good? And if you don't answer those three questions correctly, you will never be prepared for the fourth question, which is, how do I become a genuinely good person? What is real? Who has the good life? Who is the good person? And how do I become 
a genuinely good person? Those are the four great questions that determine our worldview. And our culture says these are the standards. This is the worldview. This is the way we should all operate. And Jesus comes along and he says something incredibly different. And his whole Sermon on the Mount was redefining a worldview. And he starts with this introduction with the Beatitudes. You probably have read these and maybe memorized them over and over again. But let me read them again to you because I want you to just think about the things that he's saying. He says, now when Jesus, this is in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, maybe you're so familiar with that passage that that doesn't strike you. But if you read through that list, if you listen to the things that he says, and that's just the introduction, and you go see how he expounds on that throughout that sermon, you understand he's saying some pretty outrageous stuff. It is truly outrageous. It is 180 degrees opposite of what our culture talks about and thinks about and pursues. Because he's saying the kingdom of heaven is quite different than the kingdom we live in. And what Jesus is doing in this is he is giving us a new world view. And each one of these statements are so outrageous because they're 180 degrees off from the way that we think. This morning we're going to look at this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it has to do with this. Miroslav Volf um, talks about there are two different types of richness. There is richness of having and there is richness of being. And we pursue richness of having because we think that is the good life. But that is only temporary and it is never satisfying. And what we really should be pursuing with our life is richness of being. And that's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about not richness of having, richness of being. And that's what these beatitudes are all about. That's what these blessings are all about. There are different types of blessings you find through scripture. There are two, basically two different types. There are blessings that are blessings of instruction which in essence say, if you do this, your life will be blessed. This is, how to, this is how to get the blessing. The other is more statements of this is what the blessed life looks like. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying try really, really hard to be spiritually poor because then your life will be blessed. Try really, really hard to mourn more so that your life will be blessed. He's saying, no, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the new worldview. It's a kingdom view. And blessed life comes in understanding your spiritual poverty. How does that make sense? How does richness of being come from knowing my spiritual poverty? And there's a couple of ways that happens. One is, well, it makes a lot of changes. First is that it changes absolutely fundamentally, changes my relationship to God. When I understand my spiritual poverty, it changes the way that I relate to God. Jesus put it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
What he's saying is the only way to truly experience the richness of God is to realize how terribly poor you are. And he uses a very interesting word there. There's a number of words that could be used for poverty there. He uses the word that is the most extreme sense of poverty. It is the word that would be used to describe the beggar who has absolutely no means of of any kind of income. All they can do is beg and they're totally reliant on other people's mercy and giving. And he says, when you get to the point, when you understand your your spirituality is as impoverished as that, then you're ready to experience the kingdom of God. It changes fundamentally the way that I relate to God. What Jesus is saying is the good news is that the kingdom of God is available to every person. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And by the way, there was a whole group of people, a couple of groups of people at Jesus' time who were all about making their lives what they thought spiritually rich. And, and they gave themselves fastidiously and, and, and excruciatingly to obedience to the law. They were the Pharisees and they were the teachers of the law. And Jesus said to this crowd, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it sounds like Jesus is setting the bar really, really high because, if man, if, 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 if i got to do better than those guys, how in the world am I ever going to become a part of the kingdom of God? And what he was really doing was he was setting the bar very, very low because he was saying all of their effort, all of their hard work, all of their fastidiousness, all of their careful attention to every aspect of the law is not going to get them there. It won't do. Well, if they can't get in, How can I possibly get in? I mean, how do I know? What's the standard? In fact, if you want to know a little bit later in the sermon, he said this. He said, here's the standard. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how many in this room can say, okay, I'm in on that one? (laughs) In fact, our reaction to that is, but that's impossible. How can anybody be perfect? That's that's totally impossible. And Jesus would say, okay, now you're getting it. Because that's what you got to realize. It is impossible. You cannot do enough. You cannot be good enough. And as long as you, are keep, you continue to keep trying to do this in your own strength and in your own ability, by making yourself a good person, by trying to be a better person, you will always come up short. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who try really, really hard. It's something altogether different. It has to do with mercy and grace. Paul wrote about it. He said he saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. See, there had to be another way. Because no matter where you set the bar, there will be some people that can't achieve it. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, unless you come to the end of yourself and you realize no matter how hard you try or whatever you do, it is never going to be good enough, you're going to miss out on the kingdom of God. Because it's about grace. It's about mercy. And it comes to us as a gift from God. Now, here's how that changes my relationship with God. If I think that it is up to me to somehow attain this, then I will always be striving and I will always be coming up short. And I will be exhausted and I will be frustrated because I will always know I'm not making the grade. If it all depended on me, if even a part of it depended on me, then I would somehow come up short. It would be like coming to the first day of class in college, university, coming into the first class, the teacher gets up in front, he says, there's going to be, students, there's going to be one exam this whole semester, one exam at the very, very end, it's a final exam, that will be the sole determiner of your grade, class dismissed. Wait a minute, what's the course? What's the coursework? What do we have to study? Well, you've got to go figure that out. 
Well, how will I know if I'm studying the right things? What's going to be on the exam? That's up to you to figure out. Well, are you going to teach us anything? No, no, it's up to you to figure out. How am I going to be great? I don't even know. I, I don't even know what to study to be on the final. It would be like coming and, and, and starting a new job and, and, and standing in front of the HR person. He said, okay, we're, you got this job for a year. And at the end of the year, we're going to evaluate you. And at the end of that evaluation, we'll let you know whether you get to keep the job. Well, you have a job description. No, it's up to you to figure it out. How do I know what I'm getting evaluated on? Well, do your best. I don't even know where to start. It would be like we all lined up for a race, but there was no course laid out for us. And the starting gun comes up, and he says, okay, on your mark, it's it. And everybody says, wait a minute, where are we going? Well, that's for you to figure out. Well, how will I know when we finish? Where's the finish line? We'll tell you when you get there. (laughs) And the gun goes off, and we all go running in all these different directions. See, if it all depends, if if it depends even in part on me, I will never know if I'm being good enough. I will never know if I'm arriving, if I'm on the right track even. And that's why he's saying you got to understand, you can't get there. The other side of that is, if I think in some way that I do something that contributes to God's smile on my life, if I do something that I think I am somehow earning brownie points with him, then, then I get a sense of entitlement. And then I get to a point where it's, it's like, well, God, you owe this to me. I shared last week of a very breaking part, point in my life in ministry. And it happened um, up in Ferndale, Washington. And it was, just, it was one year of, of miserable, uh, just difficulty in ministry. And I ended up, at the end of that year, out of pastoral ministry for about two and a half years. And I was so angry at God. And I, and I, I mentioned this, I think, last week. I just said, God, if this is the way you treat the people that want to serve you and give their lives for your service and serve your church, if this is the way it happens, if this is the way you treat people like this, then you can have this. I don't want any part of this anymore. And it took me a couple of years to finally realize God was saying to me, who promised you that? Who were you doing this for anyway? But see, I had this sense just... Well, God, if I'm serving you, then life ought to work out for me. If I'm giving you all of my effort, I'm dedicating my life to you, then somehow I should get some special treatment. Where was that ever promised me? Where was that ever given to us? But see, if I think that there is something that I am doing, even if it's a small contribution, if there's somehow I'm making a contribution to this whole deal, then there's going to be a sense of entitlement like God owes me something, and he doesn't. He doesn't owe us anything, but he gives us grace. He gives us mercy. And if I am trying to relate to God by my own efforts, I will either come up short every time and be frustrated, or I will think that I am succeeding and somehow God owes me something. And both of those are faulty views. What I need is His grace. And when I come to the end of myself and I realize my spiritual poverty, when you recognize your spiritual poverty, you're at the beginning point of grace. And it will change the way you relate to God. Not only does it change the way you relate to God, it changes the way I relate to other people too. Because the thing about grace is, when you are a recipient of grace, it's incumbent upon you to extend grace to other people. See, when I realize I have no special standing with God, there's nothing that I've done to deserve this, then I realize, you know what, I am in the same boat as everybody else around me. And when I grasp my need for grace... I can learn to become more gracious to other people. 
because they're just like me. And so you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read all these things that Jesus teaches and he puts an emphasis on relationships. He puts an emphasis on things like reconciliation and forgiveness. In fact, he said, listen, if you have come to temple and you've brought an offering of sacrifice and lay it on to bring on the altar and, and, and worship and sacrifice to God and you get up there and you get to your turn and you begin to realize that you have something against somebody, he says, stop right there. In fact, he says this, he says, leave your gift right there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Take care of this relationship first. Because you can't have a right relationship with me and continue to have bad relationships with the people around you. Puts his emphasis on reconciliation and on relationships, even toward our enemies. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is saying is that this richness of being thing has to do with the richness of our relationships. And the way that we relate to God now absolutely fundamentally changes the way we relate to each other. And the way that it all happens is through grace. If I've received grace, I have to extend grace. I have to become more accepting, more open, less judgmental. In fact, he says, if you see something in somebody else, he uses the example of, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, he says, listen, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be clearly able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He says, before you start making criticisms of other people, before you start judging other people, before you start making, he says, look at yourself first. Recognize what you needed God to do for you. And then, then you might be able to help the other person. Be careful about judgmentalism. Be careful about carrying grudges. Be careful about your human relationships because they're a reflection of your relationship with God, the Father. And the grace of God changes the way that I relate to God. It changes the way that I relate to other people. It's about compassion. It's about serving. It's about forgiving. It's about all these other things that Jesus talks about in the sermon. In fact, he summed it all up this. He said, in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Anybody remember something else? There was another statement Jesus made, and he said, this sums up the law and the prophets. Anybody remember what it is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the first and greatest commandment. And in this, hang all the law and the prophets. Saying the same thing in a different way. He's saying it's about your relationship with God, and it's about your relationship with other people. And instead of judging and criticizing other people, he says, be gracious toward them. In the old saying, before you judge somebody, walk a mile in their shoes. I heard someone not too long ago say, yeah. And that way, when you do criticize them, if they don't like it, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> don't think that's quite what they had in mind. But the idea is this. We are all in need, desperate need of God's grace. We are morally and spiritually bankrupt we are needing and desperate for His grace in our lives. And once we have received that, our responsibility is to extend that grace to other people. It's what we call the golden rule. It's what Jesus was talking about. However you would want to be treated, treat one another. Now, He doesn't say, depending on how you're being treated, treat one another. It's in the way that you would want to be treated. 
So here's kind of an assignment for this week. I've been trying this this week. I, this is incredibly hard, I have found. But throughout the week, just at the beginning of each day, Lord, would you help me know how to better treat people the way that I would want to be treated if I were in their shoes? And see if that doesn't challenge you a little bit. I just tried just this week. I just said, okay, God, I'm going I'm to kind of really try and concentrate on this one. Would you help me to be a little bit more towards other people the way that I would want them to be to me? Which is more than just, you know, don't hurt them. It's more like being engaged and helping them. And I began to realize as I went through this last week how incredibly difficult that is. He says, listen, you've been recipients of my grace. Now extend that grace to other people. When I understand how totally spiritually bankrupt I am and how dependent I am on his mercy and his grace, it changes the way that I relate to him, changes the way that I relate to other people. And the last one is, it keeps pushing me back to grace. Because I don't know about you, but I find and discover I am in desperate need of his grace every single day of my life. I am in need of his forgiveness. I am in need of his strength. I am in need of him transforming my life and changing my thoughts and my motives and my attitudes because those are the, all the things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't talk very much about activities and behaviors. And when he did, he always brought it back to the heart because that's what really needs to change. And what I discover through my experiences, how often I fail, how often I come up short, how often I don't live up to what I even intend to and desire to and want to and try really hard to, I realize how desperate I am for His grace. And it keeps bringing me back there. And where you see that is the cross. Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, He says, pursue richness of being and the richness of having will take care of itself. Pursue the kingdom of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the richness of having all these other things, they'll be taken care of too. They'll be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And the richness of having, that'll take care of itself. So just focus on the right things. Keep coming back to grace. Keep coming back to the cross. This is what you, um, Paul wrote. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Every failure, every shortcoming, every time I don't measure up, it's a reminder how desperate I am for his grace and how richly he has lavished it on me. And when I understand that that came at great price to him, it changes everything. And it happens at the cross. Because at the cross is where I find the forgiveness of God. It's at the cross that I'm able to learn to forgive myself. And it's at the cross where I learn how to be able to forgive others. And Jesus said, this is the new worldview. This is the kingdom. See, that's what Jesus did. He answered those four great questions. What is real? What is real is the kingdom of God. It's a reality. Who has the good life? 
those who have put their faith and trust in Him and have entered into the kingdom of God. Who is the good person? The one who is learning to receive the love of Christ and to extend the love of Christ to other people. How do you become that? By the grace of God and your faith in Him. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.